0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen uh, and welcome to the edinburgh international book festival unless of course you've already been to a lot of events uh, my name is nicolette jones and i'm the children's books reviewer for the sunday times and i'm delighted to have the chance to introduce you to jonathan stroud whose reputation as uh, an entertaining performer precedes him not to mention his reputation as a writer uh, many of you will no doubt already be fans of his wise cracking genie bartimaeus the hero of his Bartimaeus trilogy, um, which is about a a trainee wizard in a world where only the authorities are able to use magic. The three volumes of the trilogy are The Amulet of Samarkand, The Golem's Eye, and Ptolemy's Gate. And The Amulet of Samarkand, I see on the back of this jacket, was described as one of the most remarkable novels of the year. Oh, that was me. That was me that said that, (laughs) but I stand by it. Um, Jonathan's first book was a collection of word puzzles, uh, but his first novel, Buried Fire, came out in 1999, and it was followed by two other mysteries, The Leap and The Last Siege. Uh, After that, Bartimaeus was born. Uh, Jonathan grew up in St Albans, Uh, he read English at York University, uh, worked in children's publishing for a while, and is now married with two children of four and one and a half. So it's amazing he's awake enough to come talk to us. Uh, This session uh, will give you (coughs) a a rare opportunity uh, to hear about the genesis of his new book, which is not, in fact, out until January, Heroes of the Valley. And it's the story of a diminutive hero uh, in a a fantastical world, which demonstrates, again, Jonathan's wonderful way with tongue-in-cheek humor Uh, He will talk to you for some 40 minutes, after which you'll have an opportunity to ask questions. And sadly, unless nobody puts their hands up, I won't get a chance to ask any. Uh, But also just to let you know that you're in a a rare position of privilege, because on your way out, you'll be given an exclusive taster of that new novel, which isn't out until January. I'm going to hand over to Jonathan, who's going to tell you about the development of the idea for Heroes of the Valley and uh, how it grew out of his Bartimaeus trilogy. So Jonathan, over to you.
1: Thanks very much. Great. Hello. Um, Well, it's very nice to be here up in Edinburgh. I have been up here before, and um, I may have possibly seen some of you before in in previous years when I was talking about the Bartimaeus books. Um, Can I just ask how many people here have actually read uh, one of the Bartimaeus uh, books, or even all of them? Oh, good, a fair number. (coughs) Excellent. So, you know all about that. Um, I thought today that Rather than talk about Bartimaeus, although I will answer questions about it if you have any uh, at the end, um, I, would, I would talk a little bit about this new book, Heroes of the Valley, which um, I've been working on for the last couple of years. I was working on Bartimaeus for about three and a half, four years nonstop, because there are three books and it took me about four years to, to write the whole, the whole lot. And those those books kind of consumed my life. And I spent my entire time living in a world of of genies and magicians and magic and little footnotes and sarcastic remarks and things. And it was all great. But at the end of that time, I was really ready for something new. Um, And I put my pen down and it took quite a long time to pick it up again. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to write. And I don't know how many of you guys um, write stuff, but um, there there are times when you're full of inspiration and times when you're not. And for me, it took me quite a while to get any kind of inspiration again after Bartimaeus. And um, I began writing little things here and there. And eventually, I started putting something together. And this thing was based on uh, an area that I've I've been kind of interested in for some time, uh, which are the Icelandic sagas. I don't know how many of you, um, show of hands, anyone here actually read an Icelandic saga? A couple at the back, well done, excellent. but not most people, it's, 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 it's kind of very influential because there are people like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, um, and many of our sort of most famous fantasy writers have, have had a great amount of knowledge about this whole area and they've, they've, they've used that, that sort of stuff in their, in their books. Um, but the sagas themselves are fascinating. Um, and I I read quite a few a few years ago and I was quite interested in doing an adaptation of one of them. In fact, pre-Bartimeus, so I started writing an adaptation of um, a saga called Grettir's Saga, which is my favorite of all of them. Um, and before I get on to Heroes of the Valley, I'm going to talk a little bit about this, this, this actual Icelandic saga and what it's about and the kind of thing that it does. Can someone tell me what they think an Icelandic saga involves? What sort of hero do you normally associate with with sagas? Anyone got any any suggestions? Any hands up there? If, if, what sort of a hero? Um, I'm going to get my pen out, I think, because I, I might need to... Um, to, oh, it's like sort of a red pen, oh, possibly. A it's black red. Oh, yeah, I get a Oh, yeah. A sword here? Yeah, yeah, a sword. A sword, absolutely. Swords are always involved somewhere on the line. Um, and... Um, sorry, Nicolette. Um, usually, a, a saga hero is kind of a big guy. Um, he's usually got muscles like melons, and he's kind of a vast, sort of hairy sort of guy. Um, and um, uh, he's usually sort of fairly sort of intimidating and um, kind of surly looking, and he's got a big moustache and um, he, he lives up in um, in iceland or um, in the sort of viking areas and he's usually a fairly sort of tough character with um i don't know if we've got some kind sort of pigtail but if you laughed at him he be, that'd be a big mistake because he'd uh, cut your head off as soon as you look at you and um he'll have some huge great neck corded with muscle and then he'll have um sort of massive great muscles are the kind of things that the olympics you see them see some of those runners would have it um Massive great chest. What sort of weapon would he have? Sword or possibly something else? Yes. An axe. Excellent, yes. The, the Vikings and the, um, these sort of northern guys tend to go in for axes. So we'll give him a, um, some kind of a, um, what sort of? A, we'll give him a six pack as well. There you go. <laughs> um, we'll give him some gigantic great um, axe here. There he is. And he's, um, in fact, the, he actually has got some trousers on probably. You'll be pleased to know. There he is. Right, so here we go. Typical, typical saga hero. What about horns? There he is. Well, well, I, I'm sure the Vikings didn't have. How many people think that Vikings had horns, horn helmets? No, I'm sure they didn't. It was a, that's a that's a that's a fallacy. I don't know. I don't know where that came from. But we can, we could can, can give him a horned helmet if you like. Um, give him a little. There you go. A little. It's like something out of Asterix now. It's like obelix. <laughs> right. Um, so here we go. Here's our typical saga hero. Now. Um, the, the, the saga that I, I, I actually started writing a retelling of, of um, Grettir's saga for uh, Walker Books. This is about five or six years ago, because I, I was really in love with this particular hero. And Grettir um, was Grettir the Strong, and he lived in Iceland. And he was actually a good bloke, but he was just ex- A, extremely strong, and B, had a very short temper. So wherever he went, he kept on getting into trouble because some guy would make a, a cheap remark about his muscles and he would just um, punch him and kill him with one, with one blow or throw him over a hut or snap his neck like a twig. And it just got into trouble for doing this. And one thing led to another, and in the end, Grettir gets outlawed. Um, but there's a, there's a sequence in Grettir's saga which is excellent. And I'm going to read you a very short bit of my adaptation of this because... Um, it's such an exciting uh, sequence that, it, that it, really, it really thrilled me, and I, I wanted to retell it. Um, it involves Gretier's meeting with a ghost. Now, um, if, I say, if I say the word ghost, what, what does that conjure up to you? What, what, is it, what, what kind of ghosts? What kind of ghosts are there? What, what's the most sort of typical kind of ghost you can think of? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, so transparent, a bit floaty, lives in a haunted house. Well. That, that, that would kind of be my, my uh, um, idea of what a ghost was, but Icelandic ghosts are not quite the same. Um, can anyone, anyone tell me what an Icelandic ghost is going to be like? It's not quite as pleasant as that. Actually, Spanish enough? Yes. Sorry. Well, it's, it's dead for sure. It is. It's very dead. It's very dead. But it's not um it's not sort of all sort of ethereal and floaty. It's something. It's something rather more unpleasant. Yeah. It's even more unpleasant than a ghostly skeleton. It's actually, um, it, it, I think it's, a, its technical term is a revenant, which is basically a sort of undead corpse. So if you, if you kill somebody in an Icelandic saga, and, you, and they, they tend to be a bad character, if you, if you kill them, you, you bury them under a mo- mound of stones somewhere, um, and you, you go away. If they're really nasty, they tend to sort of come, sort of come back at, at night. They start clawing their way out of the out of the ground. And they come stumbling down from the hillside. And it's not like a, not like a, um, a see-through ghost. It's actually it's the body of the, of, the, of the dead person. A bit like a kind of zombie type thing, but they're really strong, and they tend to swell up and get really big and blue and a bit horrid. And they come and um, they have a, t- a strange technique of climbing up um, onto your roof. And bouncing up and down on top of your roof, causing trouble, and the whole house starts to shake. Then they'll come down and they'll kill your horses and maybe snap the neck of, a, of, a, of one of your servants if you're unlucky. And this sort of thing happened in Grettir's saga. And Grettir, Grettir the Strong, who is very famous and very brave, he hears about this ghost. It's a ghost of an unpleasant um, shepherd called Glam. And Glam um, had been killed uh, the previous year, and he'd come back to haunt this farm. And every night, Glam would come down and cause trouble and look in the windows and um, kill people. And everyone, everyone was leaving the area. And Grettir decided that he would go up there and face Glam. And I'm going to read you a very short bit from um, my adaptation of it um, because it kind of shows you the sort of thing that I was really excited about when, um, when I thought about the sagas. And it's a bit where <coughs> Grettir has gone up to this lonely farm. And he's waiting... <clears throat> Everyone's telling him to, to leave before dark, but he says, no, I'm going to wait. I'm going I'm to meet with, with Glam, and I'm going I'm to get rid of him once and for all. <coughs> and um, this is what happens. <coughs> um, everyone else has gone apart from, uh, from the, the farmer who, who owns this place. The farmer and Gretia spent the day talking together. Outside, it slowly grew dark. At last, everyone went to bed, except for Gretia, who sat quietly in the middle of the room beside the dwindling fire. He looked about him. There were plenty of signs in the house of previous damage done by Glam. The main door had been broken off its hinges and had been replaced with a simple board. One of the cross beams above the doorway had been split almost in two. All the people of the household were shut in their wooden bed closets on the edges of the room. Everything was very quiet. A torch was burning in the hall. Grettir got up and went over to a sturdy bench on the opposite wall to the doorway. He lay down on it and covered himself from head to toe with a thick fur coat. He arranged it so he could peep out through a tiny gap in the fur, and he kept his eyes fixed on the broken door. The fire burned low. The room grew cold. Gretia shivered under his cloak. Once or twice he heard snores from Four Halls closet, but otherwise it was very still. He watched the light flicker and dim. All at once, there was a loud clattering from outside as if a metal-rimmed pail had been kicked hard among the stones of the enclosure then there was a great thud as something heavy landed on the roof. Grettir listened hard. He heard slow dragging footsteps climbing the roof to the center beam, then a tumultuous banging as something began to beat its heels furiously upon the turf. Flakes of bark and dirt fell from the ceiling like heavy snow. The cracked beam above the doorway sagged a little more and the whole hall shook. After a long while, the banging stopped. Grettir listened to the slow, dragging footsteps climbing down the roof to the edge. There was a muffled impact as something landed on the ground, and then he heard the footsteps shuffling round towards the door of the house. Grettir remained very still under his cloak. A pressure was applied to the door, and the stout beam that served as its drawbar snapped like a twig. The door opened. In peered Glam's head, as big as that of an ox or a horse. The face was swollen to a colossal size, the skin mottled white and blue, the eyes scare it staring from their sockets. Slowly, Glam squeezed through the door into the hall. He was still wearing the tunic and the leggings he had worn on the day he died, but they were ragged and torn, the pale flesh swelling through. Once inside, he stretched himself up to his full height so that his brindled, grey-white hair cracked against the rafters. Glam moved his great heavy head from side to side, scanning the room. As he looked, he ground his teeth together, making a noise like a metal blade being dragged against a rock. He stretched out a huge hand to where the torch hung on the wall. His fingers cut the end of the burning brand and squeezed it, snuffing the light out. Now the room was dark, except for a little moonlight shining in through the doorway. Grettir could hardly see where Glam was. He felt a terrible urge to get up, to cry out and run, but he forced himself to remain as still as a stone under the cloak. In the blackness, he heard a slow movement. He heard the scraping of, of Glam's teeth coming nearer and nearer. Grettir stayed dead still. Two great eyes shone in the dark above him. I'll stop there before it gets very exciting. Um, well, Grettir and Glam have a massive scrap, and it's all, it's all, it's all really good stuff. And um, I, I, I was very keen a few years ago to, 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 to write that and, and to explore the sagas. But after Bartimaeus, after I... After I finished Bartimaeus and I spent all these years talking about politics and um, magicians and imps and genies and all that sort of stuff, I was, I, was, I was ready for a change, but I didn't want to go back into a kind of pure sagas with, with a hero like, like Gretia. Um, I wanted to try, try looking at sagas in a slightly different way. And so um, I began um, with a different sort of hero. That, that was kind of where it, where it began for me. I decided that I would have a hero who was, in many respects, the opposite of... Um, uh, of someone like Gretir, um, so we'll get rid of grettir and um, we come now to my hero of, of, of Heroes of the Valley who is who's called Halley, Halley Svensson and um, Halley would very much like to be uh, sort of six foot six, big muscles, lots of hair and going around with a big sword or an axe. Uh, unfortunately, well inwardly he is a bit of a hero, he's, um, he's quite brave, he's uh, resolute, he's reckless. He's got quite a lot of the, of the qualities you do need to be a hero, but outwardly, not so good. He's he's short. He's probably about about this high. Um, he's about twelve. He's twelve years old when we first meet him, and he's kind of um, he's got a sort of shock of black hair on his head, and um, he's he, he, someone someone likens him to a toad peering out in a rainstorm. He's got his his eyes are a bit sort of far apart, and he's a bit. He's a bit sort of—he's not the most handsome chap in the um, uh, in the in, in the house, but he's um, uh, there. He is looking sort of slightly slightly scruffy, and he's he's kind of broad and um, uh, short and squat, and he's got little sort of bandy legs, and um, he's basically uh, he thinks pretty uh, quite quite a lot of himself, but um, he's uh, unfortunately sort of small and a bit and a bit rubbish. And um, Halley is is my hero. And I wanted to be a bit playful with the whole saga thing. And instead of having someone who is just sort of conventionally heroic, I'd have someone who was kind of the opposite. Where does Halley live? Well, he lives in a, um, in a place called uh, Sven's House, which is in a valley um, high up in the mountains. And it's a little, a little enclosure with a hall and lots of little uh, houses around it. And it's a village of maybe sort of 60, 70 people. And Halley is the son of one of the, the, the leaders of the house. And um, he doesn't really fit in. Uh, because everyone there is quite peaceful and agricultural pursuits of one sort or another. And um, Halley is deeply bored by all this. He wants to go off doing great deeds. But unfortunately, there's no, there's no room for it because everything's very, very quiet. In the old days, it was different. In the old days, um, there were some other unpleasant monsters in the valley. And um, we learned about this early on. Um, Sven's house is kind of like this. You've got a little sort of hall uh, in the centre and lots of um, other buildings all around it kind of, there we go, and it's, there are fields all around. And around the outside of, of, of Sven's house is an old wall, which is a bit, bit, um, bit kind of broken, and uh, it used to be high and, and impressive, but now it's all broken down, and there are fields all around, and a little road comes off. And then um, beyond the fields, there's a, there's a hill with a little path going up it. And on the top of the, the hill, there's a kind of ridge, and this ridge runs along the side of the valley. And on the top of, the, of this, this ridge are little tiny cairns of stones, which Halley you can see when he looks up. And these are burial cairns of all his ancestors. And they they run all the way along the top of the the valley, both sides. And you can see it on the other side. You see it all the way down. And these cairns mark the edge of the valley. And you cannot go beyond it, because beyond it it are um, monsters called trows. and these Trows used to, used to uh, inhabit the valley too, but now they, they've been pushed back. His ancestors, long ago, um, pushed the trowels back, and they're out there beyond the, beyond the stones. The valley is peaceful, and um, beyond there, there are sort of mountains beyond that, oh, nice sort of snowy mountains. Halley would love to go and explore that area beyond it. He'd love to go beyond the, the stones, but he's not allowed. It's, it's out of bounds. His valley is, his, his valley is very quiet, and um, the people are all very deeply tedious. I'm going to read you a very, very short bit from the beginning of the story, which is when um, Halley is born. And you can kind of see that I'm trying to embed Halley into a rather ordinary sort of domestic environment. Um, and right from the start, he's kind of out of place, as you'll see. Halley Svensson was born shortly after noon one midwinter's day when snow clouds hung low over Sven's house and the skirts of the hills could not be seen. In the very hour of his birth, the drifts piled so high against the old trowel walls but a portion of them collapsed. Some people said it was a portion of great good in the boy, others of great evil. The man whose pigs the wall crushed had no opinion either way, but he wanted recompense from the child's parents. He sought arbitration on the matter at the gathering the following year, but the case was thrown out as unproven. When Halley was older, Catler, his nurse, drew his attention to the date of his arrival in the world. She clucked and whistled through her nose at the sinister implications. Oh, it is a dangerous day, midwinter, she said, as she tucked him tight into his cot. Brats born then have an affinity with dark and secret things, with witchcraft and the promptings of the moon. You must be careful not to listen to this side of your nature, else it will lead without fail to your death and the destruction of your loved ones. Aside from that, dear Halley, there's nothing to worry about. Sleep well. <laughs> Despite the raging snowstorm, Halley's father took the blood and bits from the midwife as soon as the cord was cut, and he set out up the hill. After a climb that left him frostbitten in three fingers, he got to the cairns and he threw the gift beyond the stones for the trowels to feed on. It was considered they must have liked what they ate because from the first the baby drank lustily at the breast. He grew fat and thrived and the black creep did not touch him all that winter. He was the first of Astrid's children to live since Goodney's birth three years before and it was a matter for great rejoicing among the people of the house. Halley's father, black-maned uncle, was broad in shoulder and sinewy in limb, a tall commanding presence in the hall and fields. His mother, Astrid, had fair tresses and the pinkish skin of her kin down valley. She too was tall and slender, with a beauty strange and disquieting among the dark-haired people of Sven's house. Leif and Goodney, that's his brother and sister, mirrored their parents in miniature. Both were considered slim, graceful, and easy on the eye. By contrast, Halley was from the first short in leg and broad in back, a cumbersome stump of a boy with hands like ham joints and a low swinging gait. His skin was swarthy even by the standards of men bred among the mountains. With a small snub nose, a defiant protruding chin and wide spaced eyes alive with curiosity, he glared out at the world from under an unruly mess of thick black hair. Without question, Cattler would say, your features come from your father's side. You are the image of his Uncle Onand, who farmed high crag when I was a girl. This was an unknowable gulf of time. Some people claimed that Catler was more than 60 years old. Uncle Onand, Halley repeated, was he very handsome, Cattler? He was the ugliest of men and had a difficult temperament to boot. By day he was amenable enough and indeed something of a weakling as you yourself may be. But after dark, he gained greatly in strength and was liable to ferocious rages in which he tossed men through windows and snapped benches in the hall. This awoke Halley's interest. Where did this magical strength come from? Most probably drink. In the end, an aggrieved tenant smothered him in his sleep. And it is a measure of the dislike with which Onand was held that the council merely find his killer, six sheep and a hen. Indeed, the fellow ended up by marrying the widow. I do not think I am like my great uncle Onand Catler. Well, you certainly do not have his height. Ah, see how your face corrugates sensually when you frown. You are on to the life. It is clear enough to look at you that you are prone to evil just as he was. You must guard against his darker impulses, but in the meantime, you must eat those sprouts. So poor old Hallie starts off, and he, he kind of feels sort of slightly sort of out, of, out of place. He doesn't want to spend his entire life uh, wandering around here, um, turning um, the soil and digging up turnips and things. He wants to go out and be, and be heroic, and every night... As he um, goes to bed, Catler reads him stories about his forefather Sven, whose house it was. Sven who tra- chased the trowels out, out of the valley. And when you, when you get the book, um, and in fact you'll see it actually in your, in your um, little little pamphlet that you're gonna get when you, when you leave here. Um, at the beginning of the story, we, we, we have a, one of the stories about Sven and how Sven uh, sent the trowels packing. And at the beginning of every chapter in the, in the book, um, we start off with, if I can find it we start off with a little tiny anecdote about Sven and all the sort of great things he used to do, because he was one of these typical guys with huge muscles and went around with a massive sword. And um, so every chapter you have, you, have, you have the stories of Sven and poor old Halley, he's, he's, he's growing up and he's getting more and more frustrated. He, he wants to do this kind of thing, but there's no opportunity and he's got so much energy and he, gets, he keeps on thinking of little tricks to play. So he, he spends the first few chapters causing trouble about the house, playing tricks on his parents and his, his siblings and getting beaten for his pains. But he carries on doing it because he's just got so much energy. Um, and after a while, his tricks get a little bit more serious. Um, and it isn't long before, kind of by, by accident, one of, his, one of his jokes, one of his pranks uh, leads to serious consequences. There are other houses in the valley and they're all quite competitive. Um, and at a great gathering where everyone comes together for a big party, a big celebration, one of Halley's um, tricks leads to another house, a very powerful house, um, getting extremely angry. Um, and this actually uh, awakens an old, an old feud between the houses, um, and it leads, in the end, to um, violence and murder. Some, someone is killed, and um, things suddenly become, uh, out of the blue, become a lot more serious. And Halley is actually given a quest uh, of his own, at last. He's, and in a way, he's kind of delighted, because he'd been looking for some kind of purpose to life, Um, uh, all along and he goes off and he he leaves his house behind him and he sets off um, down the valley and um, you won't be able to see it because um, it's a bit small Um, but uh, one of the first things I had to do was to visualize uh, what, where Halley lived, um, and you, well, you can't really see it, but that's my, that was my map that I drew, it shows you the, the valley, and it's, it's surrounded by mountains on all sides, and the cairns run all the way along, and there are about 12 different houses, and this is the world, no one leaves this area, no one goes out beyond it, and Halley's quite interested in the idea of going beyond it, but he's scared of the trows, and he, he hasn't even got a sword, he's got nothing to do, but he, he heads off on a quest of vengeance to uh, avenge his, one of his relations who's been killed. And this is where everything changes for him. Because up until now, he's had this, d- this desire uh, to be like the big heroes, and he's been listening to the stories and thinking that's what he wants to do. And of course, real life is not like that, as he, as he soon discovers. And one of the things that he, that he discovers immediately is that um, he can't do things on his own. Um, in the stories, it's all about just being sort of manly and, and butch, um, and uh, he, he finds he needs, he needs help. And one of the people he gets help from is a girl called Ord, uh, who's kind of the second key character of the of the story. Um, Aud is, unlike Hallie, sort of who's sort of short and squat, ha- uh, Aud is, is kind of a bit more, bit more glamorous, has to be said, but she's actually kind and she's clever and she's reckless and she's skeptical. She doesn't believe any of the stories that um, they're told uh, and she, she and Hallie make a very good combination. So their relationship is at the key, the key of the story. And as well as that, um, there was an issue which, which affected me as a writer because Halley um, has to go out and he has to, he's got the stories on one hand, his, his ideals of, of, of heroism, and life is actually not, doesn't turn out that way. And for me as a writer, I've got the, the, the notions of fantasy on one side um, and realism on the other. And with Bartimaeus, as you probably know, those of you who read it, uh, we, we, we kind of had uh, two poles in the books. You had, you had Bartimaeus, the genie who was full of humor, magic, um, kind of zap and zest and you had a Nathaniel who was a much more serious rather dour kind of character and they were almost like opposites and they collided all the time and you'd have half the, half the books would be, uh, half, the, half the chapters would be from uh, Bartimaeus's point of view and half would be following ha- um, uh, Nathaniel, the two would kind of collide um, and it was quite good to have these opposite uh, sides. In this book you, for me as a writer I had to decide how much fantasy am I actually going to put in? Because um, I, I began with all these big stories about Sven and um, in the old days I would have had lots of stuff about ghosts and um, uh, sort of trolls and things but now I'm kind of more interested almost in the, in the human side of it um, and I had to decide whether the, the trowels really existed. Uh, Halley believes they existed uh, or doesn't believe it at all. Most of the people in, in the valley kind of believe it but never want to test it and I actually wrote quite a fair bit of the book. Still not sure uh, whether I was going to have the trowels existing or not. Um, had had these, 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 these events happened in the, in the past? Were the trowels still lurking up there? It, it, was, it was a difficult one to call. Um, and there were advantages for me as a writer to have trowels, but also advantages not to have them. Um, and I'm not going to tell you what I decided, because it was, it was kind of key, key for me to come up with a solution which um, didn't let anybody down. Um, but it, that, that was my, my biggest problem with the, whole, with the whole book, was to work out... Uh, how much of a fantasy it was actually going to be. Um, most of the time, I actually spent my, my, my time in, in enjoying seeing how real people operate. How does Halley operate with, with Ord and, and how Halley operates with his parents and his family. And I'm going to read out, read out one more little sequence from, from the book, which is in a way, it's kind of like a counterpoint to the one I read out to you earlier on about um, Grettir. Um, I hadn't realised it until I was preparing this talk, but um, Grettir lies... Um, as you remember, he lies in the, in the farmyard in the dark night and he waits for this ghost to enter the door. And some of you might, re- might have realized it's actually quite similar to Beowulf. Um, uh, in Beowulf, uh, the hero waits in the hall for Grendel to, to come in and then, they, and then they have this fight. And it's, it's very, very, very similar. And I realized that as I was doing this talk that there's a sequence in here, in, in Heroes of the Valley, which in a way is a bit similar. But it hasn't got anything supernatural in it. It's very, very much about real, real threats, real danger, and it involves Halley. When he set off, he set off on his on his journey, and he's going down through the valley to gain vengeance for his 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 relation who's being killed, and he falls in with a rather sinister chap, a trader called Bjorn, who is very big, uh, very kind of quite fat and. and he seems very friendly at first, but he 's slight, something slightly wrong about him, and he 's always asking Halley questions and he notices when Halley and he are in the middle of in this, this uh, quite desolate spot, he notices that is wearing a silver belt underneath his um, tunic halley 's been hiding this, but it, 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 he, um, when he leans over it the, uh, the silver belt gets uh, gets exposed, and before he can he can hide it, this guy has spotted it, and he starts asking Halley questions about you know, do you, I, I sell all kinds of things. I'd be quite interested in buying anything silver. Do you have anything silver on your person? Hallie says, no, 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 I don't. No, I know nothing about that. And this guy's constantly asking. And they, they, they stop for the night in a very lonely, remote part of the valley um, on, in a gorge next to a great precipice. And they, they talk and they eat. And this guy's asking Hallie questions. And Hallie's putting him off. And finally, Hallie decides to go to sleep but there's been a sort of sense of danger, this guy is, is, this guy is very big, Halley is very small, Halley does not have a, um, an axe, he doesn't have a weapon of any kind, and you realise he's only 12 years old, and um, sometimes you don't need to have ghosts or, or goblins around to actually cause, uh, have danger. So I'll, I'll read you a very short bit from this, this middle sequence, which in a way is kind of like a counterpoint to the Grettier bit. So Halley and Bjorn are alone in this dark forested gorge, Um, At last, Halley wiped his mouth on his sleeve, belched, and said, in an abstract sort of way, it is fascinating to hear your tales of business. Be sure that if I meet someone with a silver item, I will direct him to you. But for now, I think I will turn in. All that wine has gone to my head. He got up and went round the fire to where a natural bank offered a comfortable spot. Here, he lay down beneath his cloak, and with a number of grunts and sighs, he composed himself for sleep. Bjorn the trader stayed sitting where he was, staring into the flames. For a long while, he remained motionless, the firelight flickering against the contours of his great impassive face. He drained his cup at last and sat hunched and thoughtful as the fire slowly died and the shadows closed in upon the little clearing in the middle of the gorge. Close by, the bony horse cropped grass. Overhead, between invisible boughs, cold stars shone. The fire burned low, Halley lay still. Bjorn was a dark, hunched form. Far below, the river chuntered over its bed of tumbled rocks. Somewhere in the forest that clung against the cliffs, an owl called. A branch snapped and shifted in the fire. Still, Bjorn sat silent. And now Halley's breathing sounded out across the clearing, slow and heavy with the rhythm of deep sleep. Outlined dimly by the firelight, Bjorn's shoulders shifted and dropped a little, as if with a release of tension. After some minutes, he leaned slowly to one side. Gentle noises followed as he foraged quietly in his bag. The noises stopped. Silence returned. A tendon cracked as Bjorn got slowly, stiffly to his feet. Hallie, watching from between his half-closed lids, saw him standing motionless for a moment, his head bowed. Then Bjorn began treading softly round beside the dying fire, using its last remaining light to guide his way. Despite his bulk, his boots were almost silent in the grass. He held something in his hand. When Bjorn reached the bank, he slowed and stopped. He stood above Halley, a hulking shadow without face or features outlined against the fire. Beneath his cloak, Halley lay quite still. Every muscle in his body tensed with terror, struggling to maintain the nonchalant sounds of sleep. His throat was tight, constricted. His breath rasped in his open mouth. His chest rose and fell raggedly. He heard blood pulsing in his ears. Still, the dark shape did not move. Then it lifted an arm. The pressure in Halley's throat became unbearable. He cried out loud and violently. The shadow jerked back. Halley's shout echoed back across the black gulf of the gorge. Halley flung his cloak aside. With a sudden rush, the shadow swooped, one arm outstretched. A black curved sickle shape flashed down. Halley rolled, sensed the impact as something drove deep into the grass and soil behind his head. Now he was on all fours, springing away and up the bank, but his boot slipped in his cloak, made him stagger and fall. Something caught his ankle. It pulled savagely, dragging him back down. With a moan of fear, Halley rolled onto his back. He lashed out with his free boot, kicking up and outwards into the darkness. He felt it collide with something soft and yielding. He heard an incoherent sound of pain. The grip on his ankle loosened. Against the firelight, Halley saw the shadow reeling, clutching at its stomach. He sprang up and away into the darkness of the clearing. After a few steps, he turned again and looked. There in the dying firelight was Bjorn stumbling after him, one half in darkness, one half lit red. His hand clawed at his belly, his voice called softly. Little Leaf, you have hurt me. You have ruptured something in my guts. I shall pay you out for that. Halley backed away slowly, slowly. Behind him sounded the distant roaring of the river. He felt the stirring of air of immense regions of emptiness. The precipice was close. He could go no further safely. With crawling skin and eyes wide and staring, he stopped dead, watching the the trader's lumbering approach. Bjorn's mouth hung open, moisture gleamed on his lips and chin. Little leaf, little leaf, give me the belt, or to be frank, as one thief to another, I shall slice your throat open on the stone. Halley bared his teeth. Here is another option, sling your buttocks onto your cringing nag and ride away in shame, for you shall never have the belt. And I'll stop there. so I was kind of. By the time I was writing it, I actually was more interested in um, in real dangers and real people and real threats rather than supernatural ones. Although I have to say, it is it is it is still a fantasy, and there are interesting things going on in the book uh, when you when you finally, if you finally uh, want to read it. Um, just before I finish, um, I can show you the cover. Um, again, it's a bit small, unfortunately. Uh, this is the cover of the um, UK edition, which is just being being printed now. Um, you can kind of see it there Um, and you can uh, covers are always really difficult as those of you who um, may have seen me talk about Bartimaeus before covers are always difficult for fantasy because um, a lot of it is in in people's heads and you don't really want to show too much and in particular with this book where as I've said you've got a bit of fantasy involved but it's not sure sort of how much fantasy actually is involved Um, you can see here that uh, we've got an image of Halley in the centre of the of the, of the cover, um, and then around it we've got these, these these sinister claws, which kind of represent the trowels which which live underground and which will come out and drag you down underground if you go beyond the, the Cairns on the edge of the valley. Um, and the artist is kind of showing it as this sort of threat on the margins of the of the story. Um, and I think it's a really good cover. It's a really excellent cover, I think, because it's, it's it's pretty exciting. Um, but it's almost more more symbolic than 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 realistic. Uh, and I. I It'll be, it'll be interesting to see when people read it, it'll be interesting to see whether they think it actually is a, an appropriate cover. The American edition, I haven't got the, the cover for that yet, is completely different. Um, they're they're going to show a cover with Hallie and Ord. This, this is this young girl, Ord um, on horseback, and Hallie being sort of lifted up by Ord. And it's much more sort of romantic. It's a very much more um, gentle sort of cover. And so this is the same book, but it's going to have two, uh, two very different kinds of um, kinds of looks in, d- in different countries. Right. Um, so do you, think, uh, do you think the Americans
0: are, are more easily scared?
1: Yeah, they probably don't like um, scary things so much. With, the, with um, Bartimaeus, um, as you, a lot of you will know, the, the Golem's Eye, um, the cover for Golem's Eye in the UK, has got um, a skeleton on the front. Um, well, sort of sinister skeleton looking. It's an excellent cover, again. Um, and it, it, did very, it did very well for the UK. But uh, it wasn't taken by the Americans. The Americans didn't like the idea of a skeleton. Um, and a lot of other countries didn't take it either. I don't know why, because things like Pirates of the Caribbean, there are, there are kind of skeletons motoring about all the time in those, and they seem to do all right. But um, covers, you have to be careful that you don't alienate a lot of your, of your, your readers. How many people here actually like this cover? Ah, oh, this is good news. Excellent. A few, a few undecided there? Anyone here dislike it intensely and are going to not buy it as a result? <laughs> he said, looking very intently in view. They
0: were too polite to say.
1: They oh, were very polite, good. Um, yeah, I think covers, covers are very, very interesting and they'll, they'll be different in all kinds of different uh, countries. Um, all, in fact, the, the, there's, a, there's a German one, and the German edition um, shows it's kind of much more straight fantasy and it shows a, a cowled figure who might be Halley, I don't know. Um, standing on the edge of a, of, a, of, a, of a cliff overlooking a beautiful valley. It's actually, very, it's actually a very nice cover, but it's, it doesn't really tell you anything. It just seems to be quite Tolkien-y, I suppose. So, Shall we give them a chance to ask a yeah, question? Do, do, do you want to stand? Do you want to sit? Yeah, no, I'll stand up. Um, okay. good. Um, chap-
0: are there any questions? Yeah, there's, yes. one, there's, one there's a, chap a, a chap mic the here, there. if you want to just wait for the mic. Just a moment, okay. the young man at the back there. Saint is the one in the Gollum's Eye? Yes. You know the skeleton in the front cover? I can't remember its name. What
1: was it? Um, he, he was Honorius, who is um, uh, a, a frit who had been trapped in, inside Gladstone's bones for about 100 years. Um, yeah, that's him. Yes? Yeah, without your question. Oh, good, yes. Good question. Um, it, was, it was a good question, though, and it was one of my favourite favorite covers, actually, because um, the guy had really done it, made it really scary, but also really fun as well. Yes, what chat questions? over here. Do you believe in ghosts? Um, do I believe in ghosts? Good question. Uh, I've never seen one, so no. When uh, ghosts do frighten me, though, there are some things that don't frighten me. Like um, I, I never get particularly fussed by aliens or stuff like that. It's kind of a, it doesn't, doesn't doesn't bother me at all. Whereas ghosts, if I'm alone in the dark on a dark night and there's a bit of a scratching on the window or something, that does that does frighten me. Um, and in fact, certain relations of mine have had kind of supernatural experiences, um, but I haven't. So I'm I'm, I'm terribly I, obviously I'm, I'm not psychic. I'm just terribly which is which is literal. scarier, a ghost or a revenant? Um, a revenant, I think, is is scarier because a ghost is, is very ephemeral, but a, uh, a kind of lumbering corpse that would actually tear you apart. That's 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 actually quite more scary. <laughs> <laughs> <That's quite okay. laughs> I know which one I choose. Yes, shuffle the front. <clears throat> Uh, do you see in the first drawing you did of the big man? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a fine Yeah. Uh, well, what book's that in? Is it out yet? No. This one. Yeah. Um, well, he's kind of based on. He's based on all these sagas. He, he's just a kind of general saga saga hero. Um, the the little the little bit I read out to you about Grettir waiting for, for the for the, the, the monstrous ghost. Um, that is going to be published actually next year in a little sort of like a little short story um, because for a long time I thought it was actually a really, a really good thing. And I, um, it's going to be published by Barrington Stoke, who do do books for um, sort of people with sort of dyslexia and things. So it'll be quite a, a small book, but it will have this sequence and it'll have a guy who basically conforms to that. Yes, yeah, yeah. Good, good
0: stories in their own right, some of them, dyslexia or not. So Yeah, absolutely. Worth reading. Fantastic. Yes, yeah. yeah, so this yeah. gentleman yeah. here. I'm always intrigued, because I get asked this a lot as well, but how, how much of yourself goes into the characters? Um, which character would you say you most resemble from your <laughs> stories?
1: Um, excellent question. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. Um, I think if you're a writer, you do tend, um, whether you like it, whether you know it or not, you do tend to put elements of yourself into pretty much everything, and certainly into your main characters. Um, I haven't thought about Halley so much. In the Bartimaeus books... Which which people will know. Um, Someone did point out to me fairly early on that Nathaniel, who is this young, uh, rather intense, over serious, uh, ambitious, slightly cold little boy, was rather like me. (laughs) (laughs) When I was about twelve, when I when I was young, I was quite sort of serious and a bit sort of intense, and you know I I got I got kind of tight shouldered and got upset about things. And so he is definitely an aspect of me. Um, I'd like to think that that Bartimaeus. Has aspects of me as well—a slightly more anarchic edge. So in a way, the, the two of them together, you sort of mix them up, and you, you get me with all my various neuroses and things. Um, I don't know about Hallie. Um, Hallie must also must also be an aspect, an aspect of me. I think there's an element in, in certainly in me where you have all kinds of dreams and ideals, and you know you 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 think about yourself being sort of really strong and everything, and you're not. And when, when, when you go out into the world, you have to sort of work out, OK, what are your strengths? Maybe you do have strengths, but they're not the ones that you thought you did. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess all my characters will have some aspects. So would it be the same with you? Did you yeah, do you feel that? Also, yeah, I mean, I, I find all my main characters have elements of me. And, um, yeah. Oh, really? So having a character who's terribly phobic of heights began to be really interesting. So. I think, yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I think it is, I think I, I guess the, the really great writers are the ones who are able to um, uh, put themselves into other, almost anybody else. They can just sort of make an imaginative jump and become someone of a different gender or someone of a different age, different period. You know, the really great writers can do that effortlessly. And you know, those of us who, who, who do our best and you know, write as best we can, um, you know, you try it as much as you can, but it, but it, it's always going to be more of a struggle if it's if it's something that's different. Um, in a way, my most the book that I I, I, tr- I struggle with most was was the leap, which is one of my less well-known books. Where there's a girl who is basically bereaved at the beginning of the book. Her her best friend is drowned, and the whole book is really about her grief. And I fortunately, I have not actually experienced that kind of that kind of uh, grief. Um, so to what extent the whole book is, is a sort of fiction and what, w- to what extent is actually true to what I would feel uh, if I had that experience, I don't know. Um, but you, 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 you have, as a writer, you've got to try these things and see whether it works. OK, let's see. Uh, Should we take the gentleman in the middle here?
0: Yes. OK, and then well, we'll, we'll, we'll take the down here.
1: Yeah. Uh, talking of scariness, both <laughs> from the pictures and the content of the book, do you yes. ever find yourself over-egging it and having to rewrite bits to make them less scary for your target audience? Oh yes, you toned anything down? Good, Good question. question. Um, yeah, well there was one sequence in, again in the Bartimaeus books, uh, the sequence with um, Honorius the Afrit, um, who's, who, who's basically inside a, he's inside a tomb, um, and there's a bit where, 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 where the girl called Kitty and her friends go down into this crypt um, and they they go looking for treasure, and they uh, they they break the crypt open, they break the sarcophagus open, and um, they think they're going to get all the treasure. But this this thing springs up, and it basically kills he kills most of them, apart from apart from Kitty. When I first wrote it, <laughs> I really went over the top, and I, I had this dreadful bit where um, one of the characters leans in, and he gets I can't remember what, what happened, but I think he his I think his head got got taken off, and his head sort of bounced along the floor, and it was kind of like. And I, I let my wife read it and just said, look, <laughs> 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 uh, oh, yeah, fair, 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 fair play. So I, I kind of um, submerged that. Because there's, there's a difference between being scary and being uh, gruesome. It's like most so many movies make, make the error that they go in for kind of gore and, and sort of uh, showing you too much, it's really scary stuff. Um, you don't see it. You, you, you just um, you, you have it off screen. Um, and I'm getting better, I think, at um, not, not, showing, not showing so much. Um, I guess in this talk, I've kind of gone in for sort of scary bits, but most, most of the book is more, it's more, more suspense, I suppose, than outright. And sometimes you, you, add, you actually add humour to the gory bits so that it somehow undercuts it a bit. Well, I that's think you true do, of I the opening
0: d- of Heroes, isn't yes, it? Yes,
1: it is. I mean, you'll see, if you read the, the little bit pamphlet when you, when you go, that's, that's kind of the story about Sven. And that's kind of playing it fairly straight, but even there's a bit of humour in, involved. And as soon as you get to Halley, and Halley's trying to be this hero, um, it just doesn't. It doesn't work, and you're constantly me- playing around with the genre, which is what I did with with Bartimaeus, with the, with the fantasy and all the sort of politics and stuff there. I mix things around, and I'm kind of having fun mixing around um, sagas and you know, there's, a, there's a kind of thing. I, I got personally got a bit bored with the second Lord of the Rings movie. I don't know what people think, but I, I love Lord of the Rings and I love the first movie. But the second one, where there's that, that, that endless battle of Helm's Deep with people kind of. Orcs motoring along, and everyone's fighting. After a while, you know, I just thought, okay, I've, I've, I've seen this before. And um, part of my response is, is in *Here Is the Valley*. I'm kind of taking that sort of genre and slightly playing around with it. And there's lots of stuff about families and mums and dads, and um, just just making it a bit bit less obvious, I suppose.
0: There were some questions. There were some over more questions down here. here yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, young made
0: in red. Thank you. <coughs> with Marty Mayer's books. Did you know what the rough story was going to be at the beginning? Or?
1: That's an excellent yes. question. Um, right at the beginning, no. When I, when, I first, when I first wrote the opening to the Amulet of Samarkand, which is when Bartimaeus appears and he meets Nathaniel for the first time, I knew nothing about the story. I didn't know who the boy was. I didn't know why he'd summoned Bartimaeus. I didn't know what the Amulet of Samarkand did or anything. And I was just kind of writing and enjoying the, the experience of creating these characters and the voice of Bartimaeus. But quite soon, I realized I had to think of a, of a plot, <laughs> as we said. <laughs> yeah, okay. And um, I, I, after about 50 pages, I, I sat down and I started writing um, a plot. And then I did plan out, roughly, very roughly, all three books. So I did know where it was, was going to go. And that was key, actually. Um, it was key that, that I knew. I had a I had a goal to go. I don't know what other people find when they're writing anything of any length, um, but you do often need to have some kind of a an objective. Good question. More questions? Got a couple more here, yeah. Chat. Did anybody out of your family, friends or enemies like that, uh, inspire <laughs> you to uh, with any of the characters? Yes, great opportunity. The enemies. Yes, <laughs> I've always, I've always, um, I have always had this sort of desire to, to put, you know, I don't have too many enemies, but you do occasionally sort of think it'd be quite nice to take someone that you anno- who annoys you, and, and put them into your, into your books, cunningly distorting it so they can't sue you. That's, the, that's an important <laughs> bit as well. Um, no, I don't think I, not consciously, I haven't consciously sort of taken a character and said, right. Auntie Jemima is going to go in my, in my book. Having said that, um, there are th- you know, people will say things to me or they'll have a certain turn of phrase or a certain kind of personality, and they will get echoes um, in the in books, um, inev- inevitably. Because all, all, when you're a writer, all you do is you're, you're, you're listening, you're watching, you're meeting people. I'm talking to you now. Um, you know, th- cer- certain things I'll forget. Certain things will stick, and you never know. In um, you know, a couple of months' time, I might suddenly... Yeah, that guy I met in Edinburgh. Let's just get him... <laughs> <laughs>
0: It may, it may all reappear. I know that Anthony Horowitz put every single teacher he had at school into his books <laughs> and, and killed them all off. <laughs> um, any other questions? <coughs> yeah, we have other one hands up on. over here. Yes, yeah. the <coughs> one in the back. Um, where did you get so good at drawing and what gave you the idea for using them in the
1: talks? <laughs> <laughs> when you say you're so good, um, <coughs> it's, all, it's all relative, relative terms. Um, well, when I was smaller, um, I, uh, for a long time, I was kind of equally interested in, in pictures and in words, and I, would, I, would, I spent a lot of my time writing comics. When I was about t- uh, no, 7, 8, 9, 10, I, most of my creative stuff was comics, because I used to read the No and I used to read Asterix and stuff like that, and I'd be very... Uh, the idea of doing comics was, like, was my, my ideal, my dream, um, and so I did do a lot of drawing for a while, and it wasn't until maybe I was, I don't know, in my mid-teens that I began to do more writing and less art. So, anyway, I, I, I like drawing and I always have liked drawing, um, and I quite like drawing to sort of express myself. When I'm, when I'm writing notes for my books, I tend to sort of scribble and do little maps and little, like, how's that room going to look? I'll sort of do a little rubbishy sketch. I mean, it is rubbish, but it, is, it nonetheless is useful for me uh, visually. Um, and talking of comics, there's going to be a Bartimaeus comic um, eventually. Uh, the American publishers are doing a, a graphic novel of the Amulet of Samarkand. So that will come out, hopefully, in a, in a year or two. Sounds exciting. Yes. Any more questions? questions? Yeah, I'm sure there's a... There are a few other yes, hands chapter, here. Yeah, there's chap here, yep. Doesn't the cover of the new book yeah. looks a bit like the Lord of the Rings with the two mm. tower things oh, coming up? Mm, that may have been a delivery. <laughs> <better. laughs> <laughs> Hmm, it, it probably, gulps. <laughs> <Goldfish>. um, <laughs> well, you know, that it, it, it's, that's actually not a bad thing. It may, it may do, it, it's not intentional, it's definitely not intentional, but um, if it has got an echo, that's probably okay, because um, uh, it'll, people who like Lord of the Rings will probably like this as well. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll ask the designer about that, just to see whether he's, <laughs> whether he's got a little, um, little Lord of the Rings DVD on his desk, and he's been copying it. Yeah, you, you, might, you might be right. No, a- any more questions? Yes. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Um, how long did it take to get your first book published? Did it ever get rejected by any publishers? Um, good question. Uh, yes, it got rejected. Um, I my first books. I, I was an editor at a, at a publisher called Walker Books. and I used to um, do little puzzle books, a bit like um, anyone uh, here read Where's Wally? Yep. Um, Where's Wally? My first job, actually, was, do, was working as an editor on a kind of Where's Wally spin-off. Um, and they were, everyone was trying to do uh, word puzzle books and b- puzzles of various sorts. And I did a few of them um, while I was an editor. But then, on, in my spare time, I began writing a novel. Um, and eventually, I finished it, and I sent it off to various different publishers and agents. And it got rejected about, I think, three times. Um, and eventually, an editor uh, who, was, who was very very experienced took, got me in, and she said, look, at the moment, it's... Uh, it's far too long. It's really overwritten, all kinds of bits of purple prose in it. But if you actually cut it down, get rid of certain things, make it much more streamlined, I think we can publish it. So she actually, um, she was great because she basically made me go away and rewrite it. But I knew, I had that carrot. I knew that if I did it, uh, it might get, might get published. So it probably, took, uh, it probably took me two or three years to get from finishing the first draft of this book to actually having it um, accepted.
0: And did subsequent editors whittle things down, or do, did you write differently after that?
1: Um, that was, that one I, was the one I had most, most change to, and in fact, de- decreasingly, I, I've got more effective at um, kind of guessing what people are going to say. There's always things though, where you always will have, you get so close, like anything, you get very close to what you're writing and you don't know what's good and what's bad after a while, so you, you always need to have editors coming in and, um, uh, and making, making very clever comments. Any more clever comments from the audience? There's one there, I think. Yes. Um, do you have a favourite book out of the ones that you've written? Uh, that's an excellent question. And I... Yeah. My, for a long time, my favourite book was Ptolemy's Gate, which is the part three of the Bartimaeus trilogy. Um, it was my favourite one because uh, I think it had the best balance of... I was saying earlier on, I like trying like try to mix different things in. And I thought Ptolemy's Gate had the best balance of humour, um, action characterization, everything else, and it all sort of dovetailed nicely. So I was very proud of it. Um, Heroes of the Valley, I think, um, has some of my favorite bits in it. Well, I'm not sure yet whether I think it, I like it better than Ptolemy's Gate or not, um, but I do think it has some excellent bits in which are sort of almost the best, best sequences that I've, I've written. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what people think because a lot of people like Bartimaeus, the genie, because he's very sarcastic and kind of charismatic, and he's not in the book. So whether people will like this book as much, I don't know, but I am quite proud of it.
0: But there is a slightly, slightly sarcastic voice somehow in the narrative voice. Because a <laughs> it's kind just of general, me, I'm just a generally yes, a
1: sarcastic character. <laughs> and so <coughs> that
0: may work. Uh, yes, gentleman again? Out of interest, do you read many other
1: authors uh, in the same genre, or do you avoid doing that deliberately? To um, that's an excellent question, and I'm, I, I, don't, I don't avoid deliberately. When I'm writing, I do tend to avoid... Um, uh, reading anything that's even remotely similar um, because you, you, you kind of have a, wor- a world view and, and you, you, you almost, well, there's a certain amount of energy that in, involves in writing a book and you, you, you're, you're in it all day and when, at the end of the day, the last thing you want to do is to then jump into somebody else's world and, and um, kind of get, get carried away by that. So I, I tend to stay in my own little world. When I finish my book, um, I think it is good to read other people who do the similar sort of thing because you're going to you're going to you're, you're going to get in, inspired by the by the good ones and the ones that you don't like. Well, it's no no harm done. Well, I, I recently read um, a new book by Neil Gaiman uh, called The Graveyard Book, which I heartily recommend. Uh, I, I don't think it, I don't think it's out yet. I think it's coming out this autumn, um, and um, that was excellent. Uh, it's the kind of book that you read and you think, oh, I wish I'd, written it. <laughs> <laughs> wish I'd done that one. Because it, it had a certain lightness and it was exciting and a bit scary. And it was, it was, it was good. So that's an example of somebody that I, that I like.
0: Yeah. Yes, we like your
1: questions. Go ahead.
0: Let's have another. <laughs> <coughs> what hours do you work?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's yes. an excellent question. Well, I, it, um, it, it varies a bit. But I do, when, I'm, when I'm writing, I do try and do a kind of nine to five. That's my, my aim would be to go get to the office, cup of tea, sit down and try and write maybe, this is my ideal: would be to write five pages. Um, I, very, you know, I very rarely manage it. With Bartimaeus, I used to get into a real role and I would, I would like, write maybe 25 pages a week. I was really into it. Um, and that's what I, I aim to do. And if I finish that by one o'clock in the afternoon, well, I could go home. Or, or I could go and write some letters or do some admin or something but I will try and do a do a proper day's work. Because if I sort of sit around waiting for inspiration, like, oh, I'm not going to write until I get a brilliant idea, then nothing would ever happen, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, another question here. Hey, when you were young, hey, which books did you read? Like adventure books or fantasy and all? I, I tended always... Uh, which books did I read? I, I tended always to veer towards... Um, fantasy, adventure, things that were sort of away from the gritty realism. If it it involved a tower block and divorced parents and things, I tended to give it a wide berth. But if it involved um, adventures and and quests and heroic things, then I tended to like it. So I I like my Tolkien and my C.S. Lewis and Diana Wynne Jones. And um, in my mid-teens, I stopped reading fantasy, generally, because I kind of read a lot, so much fantasy, I realized that there's only about two or three plots in the whole world, and everyone's kind, of, everyone's kind of just doing the same Tolkien-type stuff. There were so many books that were just sort of Tolkien rip-offs, and I, I, I kind of stopped reading fantasy in my mid-teens. Now, as an adult, I'm, I'm kind of reading more fantasy again, but it's, it's the good stuff I go for now, <laughs> not just the, any old good. stuff.
0: Um, have we got anybody who hasn't asked a question yet who'd like to ask one? Okay, well, if we'll not, we go have our this favourite good questioner yeah, off <laughs> Fount
1: us. of good, good questions here. <laughs> Uh, would you prefer to handwrite or use a computer? Oh, that's an excellent question as well. Um, well, I, it, it's both. When I'm when I'm actually writing the text, um, I tend to write directly. I type directly onto the screen because then I can print it out, and there it is, like like real text. So, for example, uh, like that bit I read out about grittier and and the and the ghost. That's that's what it's that's what it looks like at the end of the day. I always have a few pages, hopefully. Of, of text. And it feels real. It feels like a real, a real um, bit of text. But if I'm doing um, uh, kind of notes, thinking about how the story's going to go, like working out the plot, then I'll, I'll do, what have I got here? Yeah, it'll be more like this, you know, like I, I was doing these maps, I was doing it on, in pencil, and I'll, I'll, I'll do it on bits of ordinary paper. For some reason, I, when, I'm, when I'm trying to think of ideas, I need to use pen and paper. And then when I'm trying to write, I'll, I'll do the computer
0: i'm afraid i'm going to have to round up if anybody else wants to ask jonathan anything you're welcome to do it oh in yeah. the bookshop yeah, yeah. where God he's yeah. very kindly offered to, to sign copies of the bartimaeus books um but just so that you know when you leave at the exit you can collect from claire who's over there in their sort of salmon jacket your uh, I- exclusive <coughs> tasters of heroes of the valley Um, which, as I say, won't in fact come out till January. And meanwhile, just to say thank you very much for all your wonderful questions and uh, for your great attention. And many thanks to Jonathan for his fantastic, as expected, fantastic performance. And uh, we hope that all those aspects of himself that we've read about in the books are going to go on (laughs) producing fruitful books for a very long time to come. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.